Hi, I'm Dr. Andreas Lopakis, Editor-in-Chief for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. And today, March 12th, I'm speaking with Mike Nolan and Dr. Jerome Lease. Uh, Mike's the Chief Paramedic and Director of Emergency Services for Renfrew County in Eastern Ontario. And Jerome is the Medical Director, Infection Prevention and Control at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. Uh, they're with me today to discuss the current situation with testing for COVID-19 screening and follow-up of patients. Um, hello to both of you, and thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Good day. Maybe I'll start with you, Jerome. In the early weeks of the COVID-19 epidemic in Canada, most people, I think, in the country were being screened for coronavirus and hospital EDs. And uh, about a week ago, you published a report in the CMAJ suggesting that we should probably be trying to screen people in the uh, community and not in the EDs. And maybe you can tell us briefly um, why you suggested that and how things may have changed since then. In the early days, as you pointed out, our, our approach was really fully focused on containment and we were relying on hospitals, especially, who have established uh, preparedness and screening protocols in place to identify specifically returned travelers and symptoms to uh, determine which patients should be tested so that we can uh, rapidly contain those cases and not allow them to spread uh, to the broader community. But the reality is um, community-based transmission is occurring now because this Outbreak has spread broadly to a large number of countries, including the United States. And uh, at this point in time, due to ongoing travel, there is a vast number of cases that are becoming locally transmitted in our community in Canada. Likely, the vast majority which would not have made their way to being uh, identified and coming to medical attention. And that is what is driving predominantly this epidemic, which is that the symptoms for the majority of patients are mild, and many of them would not otherwise lead to an assessment. The, the sheer number of cases being spread in the community with mild symptoms is what has made this impossible to contain uh, across uh, the globe. And hence, we have a pandemic, which is a very different uh, situation when it comes to our uh, assumptions and how we manage uh, cases moving forward. So, Mike, can you tell us what's been happening in Renfrew County, a very different part of Ontario with, I think, not nearly as much travel in and out of the area, I think, but also uh, people spread much broader across a very large rural area? So, in Renfrew County, the uh, situation, as you say, Andres, is, is quite different in that we've had the opportunity to learn from Toronto and Vancouver and other jurisdictions that were initially affected in the Canadian context. So what we chose to do here with the scant resources that many health units have was collaborate with the Rent County District Health Units so that their expertise could be focused on the pre-screening of individuals over the phone, which would allow uh, community paramedics to be able to go out, do clinical assessments in the homes of the individuals they're concerned about, and as well be able to uh, obtain a specimen sample in the home. That allowed us to keep people um, where we believe they should be, and that's um, with self-isolation. It allowed the paramedics to put eyes on to determine really in a forward triaging kind of way, who's sick, who's not sick, how sick are they, and be able to relay that back as well to public health so that as the specimen uh, worked its way through the lab uh, for confirmation. 
uh, we are able to continue to monitor those individuals, certainly provide them instruction in terms of self-care within the home. If they are of concern, uh, say they have comorbidities um, that would put them at a higher risk category, we also have remote monitoring devices uh, that we teach them with, um, we leave in the home, and then we can simultaneously monitor multiple patients through a dashboard and be able to track their vital signs uh, over the days that they have to wait to be able to get their results back. So who should be swapped, Jerome? This is an excellent uh, question and one that is uh, that really requires uh, some careful planning uh, at uh, a public health level and many factors need to be taken into account uh, which we can consider. You would intuitively assume that anyone with symptoms should be swabbed so that they could know their diagnosis. But in fact, we need to actually think about uh, that in the context of a, a large number of community cases that we are likely to see in, in a short period of time. And of course, the logistics of that and uh, how that can be done in a way that will not increase the number of exposures and can actually keep that number to a minimum. And of course, finally, which we can talk about the resources available in terms of swabs and testing and, and reagents and laboratory capacity. I, I think early on, especially as we're still working heavily on containment, even though we've acknowledged that there's community spread, uh, we're certainly wanting to test more and not less. But as things evolve, our testing strategy uh, will likely evolve as well, and we may become more restrictive over time, um, you know, especially given the potential for, uh, for resource limitations. Who are you testing in Ranfrew County, Mike? So along the same lines as Jerome uh, identified, we actually rely upon the health unit to be able to work through the case definition and that screening to then trigger the paramedic uh, going out of the community to do their assessment. So there's considerable amount of thought and I think a, a very necessary step, especially when their initial assessment is over the phone. I think that that's important because even with the notion of assessment centers, we're still asking people to gather. So the more that we can do virtually and remotely and be able to hone in on those patients that are most likely to require a test, it certainly allows us to be able to better allocate our resources in the community. And I think the other group that we haven't talked about is about healthcare workers themselves. And there's been considerable discussion of prioritization of those tests because, for example, uh, swabs are very difficult to come by right now. So there may be a natural element within the system here that forces us to say who does and doesn't get swabbed, who is most likely to need to be swabbed, and then the very practical issues of getting healthcare workers back to work after having received their test results. If I was a family doc and I got called by a patient who said, you know, I haven't traveled anywhere, I did go to the um, the lease Tampa Bay game on whenever that was, Monday or Tuesday, and now I've got kind of a cough and a fever and I don't feel great. Should I be swapped? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And so with some of the overarching principles, and by the way, I agree with Mike entirely, um, you know, we can sort of work through the different scenarios. And I do believe that direction, uh, you know, needs to be given uh, at a high level so that we can 
get the right balance in terms of the surveillance that we need to do and minimizing exposures and uh, using our resources efficiently. And so let's let's take the easy ones first. So on the one hand, a patient with you know an acute medical illness who comes in with respiratory symptoms, even without travel at this point in time, if they are being uh, admitted to an acute care hospital, or quite frankly, if they reside in a long-term care facility, those individuals need to be tested. It's extremely important for uh, infection control management and limiting transmission within those facilities. So that's, that part is, I think, clear cut. And I know that uh, our hospital has the capacity to do that. Many other hospitals are uh, almost there, and that needs to be a very high priority. On the other side of the spectrum are people that are you know, asymptomatic. Let's say some of them have even traveled, so they're extra concerned, but they really have no symptoms, whether they've traveled or not. You'll have seen that in some countries, there was a tendency to test people that had no symptoms. And I, I would say that in Canada, and looking at what I know locally, provincially, and federally, I do not think that that is the right approach in Canada. And there, I, I think that if people are concerned about COVID-19 and are looking to be tested, uh, if they have no symptoms, um, then really we should not be testing those individuals. They need to be using a self-monitoring approach to monitor for symptoms if there's any concern about uh, an exposure. And then in between is sort of the, some of the patients that you're talking about, Andreas. So uh, we'll take someone with mild symptoms. Maybe it resembles something like the common cold, which we know is one of the clinical presentations of COVID-19. It will say that they have no fever. They're uh, systemically well and you know, otherwise wouldn't have been concerned about it. Um, and so then I think we need to be risk stratifying those individuals. And so uh, you know, we can look at clinical factors like uh, their age to see if they have, uh, you know, if they're otherwise young, meaning you know, probably less than 50 or 60, uh, they have no comorbidities, uh, they have good access to care if ever they get sicker. They don't have a high-risk occupation, which is what uh, Mike was talking about. So they're not a healthcare worker where we would really, really, really want to be sure. In that situation, I think it could be argued that the person for sure needs to uh, self-isolate at home. We clearly don't want that person uh, going out and uh, exposing others and propagating the community spread. But it could be argued that the testing for that individual probably, you know, would not have a big impact on management because they don't have some of the risk factors to have a poor outcome from this. And if they do get worse, they can be reassessed and, of course, tested at that time. And then, of course, there's the, the opposite group of what I just presented, you know, the same patient, Andreas, that you just presented, uh, who has mild symptoms, but they're a bit older. They've got some comorbidities. They may be a healthcare worker, as Mike said. Those individuals for sure should be tested as well because it could have implications in terms of management. Uh, some of those, a proportion of them, will need acute medical management, and it's important to, to know the diagnosis. And if they're a healthcare worker, it has implications about when they can uh, go back to work. And those individuals really obviously should be home isolating as well. They're not sick enough to be admitted to an acute care facility, uh, but it's important to have access to testing for those individuals. And I think that's the main group where assessment centers, I think, uh, should focus on. Mike, have you guys set up any assessment centers in Renfrew County? No, not as of yet. The um, paramedics doing the home visits and uh, the sampling in the community is uh, what we're seeing as the first step towards assessment centers. So okay. it's partly as a mitigation effort, but also as 
trying to create a behavioral norm within the community so that people aren't automatically going to the emergency department or a doctor's office. So, Jerome, it sounds like uh, Toronto has or is setting up assessment centers. Yeah, so to be perfectly clear, I think these assessment centers are, as I've talked about, related to testing, not for people who are just curious or just want to get tested if they don't have symptoms. And they're likely not even for people who have mild symptoms and none of the risk factors for needing uh, to be tested. So I think that the group that is trying to be, t- is, that should be targeted here for these assessment clinics, uh, again, are the people with uh, symptoms that are not severe enough to be hospitalized so that they can have a place outside of the emergency department where they can be assessed, hopefully rapidly uh, and, and tested, and especially to uh, help the individuals that are at risk or who need to be tested for occupational health or infection control or public health reasons. Um, what that looks like is still being determined in multiple different jurisdictions. Uh, we have, uh, you know, different uh, regions uh, in Ontario, and uh, the assessment clinics are going to be cropping up very, very shortly. There's a huge amount of work underway, and some of them will be uh, in, you know, right in the community. Some of them will be associated with hospitals. Uh, but not in the hospital itself or at least in a separate wing so that they uh, have, you know, ties with the emergency department if they do identify patients that have acute medical illness, but mainly also so that they can uh, work with hospitals who may be able to uh, have capacity for the testing as well. Um, I think what one of the most important issues with these assessment clinics, or actually probably there are two big issues. One, there needs to be clarity on who should be accessing them. Uh, And that needs to take into account all the factors we talked about related to not uh, overwhelming the system, leading to more exposures, you know, outstripping our capacity uh, from a lab testing perspective. Um, And so there needs to be really uh, a lot of clarity about uh, the indications for going to an assessment clinic. And, you know, just as Mike was talking earlier, which was great, around, you know, a a virtual triage uh, system to determine who should be tested uh, and and, and even for home testing, which I think is another complementary way of of testing beyond assessment clinics, uh, I think there needs to be a virtual platform that would almost, uh, you know, pre-triage anyone considering an assessment clinic. Maybe we can just switch to um, the home isolation. Mike, what are you telling when you tell someone that they need to be home isolated? What what specifically are you telling them? And what about the people that they're living with? So the home isolation instructions that we're providing are really around self-care and uh, encouraging people to stay within their own home environment. The people that they live with often uh, need to be assessed as well in terms of what are their comorbidities or what are the things that make them vulnerable um, to disease. Depends on the home environment as well uh, in terms of being able to isolate someone within a home area, being able to up cleaning that occurs in that area. And if, for example, um, the patient's loved one was a recent cancer survivor, for example, the recommendations are for them to find alternate living arrangements if possible so that they don't uh, then contract the virus and uh, have further complications. And then what do you use to decide that they no longer need to be self-isolated? In terms of the clearance process for the patients themselves, in our case, public health tracks them uh, for the period until they get the results back. And at that point, there's a conversation between the physician Uh, directly and the patient in terms of uh, any further precautions that may be required, 
any other underlying symptoms, for example, given that not all of these cases uh, will necessarily be positive. Um, yet there is still something underlying in terms of uh, upper respiratory infection, for example, that requires ongoing management. I mean, Jerome, I heard you say that you're going to be, or you are suggesting even now that I think some people that might have COVID-19 probably just shouldn't be tested because they're relatively healthy and we don't want to overburden the system. So let's say someone doesn't have a test and they're feeling not great, but then they start feeling better. At what point do you say they can come out of self-isolation? That's a golden question. And one of the issues with COVID-19 uh, is that we don't have the information that we do for other many other respiratory viruses in terms of how long people remain infectious. Um, if we have a test result, uh, we can actually, we use that as our endpoint. Uh, once they convert a negative after two tests, at least 24 hours apart, they become cleared. But you're right, if they haven't been tested, we have to go symptom-based. Now, the good news is there's a little bit of early data, some of it from Germany just in the last few days, suggesting that the viral load decreases quite precipitously after symptoms resolve. We don't know for sure whether people are still communicable, but it looks like uh, a, that uh, drops off significantly with symptom improvement. Um, you know, I think that public health in the coming days will need to uh, give guidance because we can't leave it to people's individual judgment. Uh, if people have symptoms, they're told to stay home. And uh, if they don't have a reason to be tested, uh, then we uh, should assume that they may have COVID-19 and they need to have a specific duration for home isolation. I think that duration should be until full resolution of symptoms and probably uh, a minimum of seven days. Uh, and resolution of symptoms being for at least 24 hours. But I think that that's just ballpark, and I think specifics need to be given. This is always the trouble with this, is that as we're learning about the virus, we don't have the best evidence, but at some point we do need to give clear guidance to uh, that people can follow. So let's move on to the social distancing. Maybe start with you, Jerome. There's only so much we can isolate ourselves we still need to go out and get food and sort of live our lives so what what's what's the current advice i think that to begin to talk about um social distancing measures i think we need to have a bit of a context related to what the epidemiologists are seeing when they're looking at the numbers in terms of this pandemic and you don't need to look very far you can look south of the border in washington to see the type of evolving crisis that they are facing. You can obviously look at uh, countries like Italy, where uh, a large amount of community-based transmission occurred before it was recognized. Uh, and so, of course, uh, some of the public health uh, interventions that could have softened that, not prevented it, but probably softened it, were not implemented in time. And in fact, uh, you know, those cases have really overwhelmed those healthcare systems and uh, led to a very, very bad situation. And so epidemiologists in Canada are aware that there's now community-based transmission in Canada. We're still perhaps a few weeks behind those other locations. And so we have a very, very crucial window here where uh, some simple but yet difficult to do public health interventions at a large scale could shape the epidemiologic curve, could 
we'll say flatten the peak and allow us to uh, be able to hopefully with probably still some additional surge capacity in our healthcare system, be able to manage the uh, patients that we will see in our acute care hospitals uh, and our communities and especially in our critical care uh, units. Um, so, you know, with that context, um, you know, some of those measures really include, uh, you know, things that we always say, which is if you have symptoms that are potentially infectious, a cough, runny nose, sore throat, however mild they may be, you might feel like your business as usual and you're going to and from the store, to and from work, doing all the regular things, you must stay home. And uh, that is a very, very difficult thing for people to do. It's a message that we always give and it's critically important right now. Um, people that go to work, you know, again, uh, uh, if they have symptoms, they shouldn't be going to work. But even better than that is because some of the symptoms are very mild, anywhere we can reduce groups from congregating and having meetings, um, and that can actually, you know, reduce transmission in the community significantly. Um, and so we've looked at, you know, sporting events. We've heard about sporting events, conferences and other events that have been canceled. And I think that's in response to some of that data uh, that is telling us that now is the time uh, to use the social distancing as much as we can. Mike, do you have anything to add? And what are you doing in Renfrew County around this? I think the questions that we're hearing most often from the public are uh, about you know March break, about Easter, St. Patrick's Day, the things where you know they really have to dig deep down inside to change behaviors. And I think that, you know, from a work perspective, we can certainly say thou shall, and you will not get together in a boardroom. And, and, and I think that, that that seems to be an easier decision for people. When we start moving into changing customs, changing traditions that will force uh, people together, and often in uh, more intimate ways, sharing of drinks, food, and so on, it certainly raises the specter of how we're going to achieve societal behavior change in a matter of days and weeks. And that's often in conflict with the messaging about uh, the pandemic overall, right? There's certainly a desire and a need for calm, but at the same time, we need to allow people the opportunity to truly internalize what's going on around them and make good decisions. And maybe just to follow up on that then, Nurka, little town in Renfrew County, Douglas has a St. Patrick's Day parade every year. Is is that going to be canceled? Is it suggesting that people should not go into the bars there? Well, serendipitous, I suppose, but the St. Patrick's Day parade happened the week before. So oh. we've got that behind us. Uh, the bigger issue now is, uh, is uh, how big the crowd will be uh, in the uh, Douglas Tavern for St. Patrick's Day. And you know, repeating itself really right across Canada in small towns and large. And I think that uh, we really need to consider uh, providing alternatives and encouraging people to seek alternatives of ways of maintaining tradition, but at the same time, uh, eliminating the unnecessary risk. Correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'll start with you, Jerome. But my my sense is that in the U.S., they haven't been testing as rigorously as we have. And so there, there might be a significant underestimation of the amount of 
COVID-19 that's circulating in that country, uh, which obviously has implications for Canadians that are thinking of going down uh, for the March break. Am I right about my guess? And uh, do you want to comment on that? I would say it even more strongly. The U.S. is grossly underestimating the number of cases they have. Some estimates are in the range of 50,000 cases uh, that I have seen based, again, on mathematical modeling and epidemiology. Um, I think when people are traveling to the U.S., you know, it's a large country. Okay, let's assume there's 50,000 cases. Even if that were true, people might be saying, well, my individual risk is quite low at an individual level. And actually, that is also true. Uh, you know, it's a large country, and that's still a relatively small proportion of an entire uh, country. But there will be uh, Canadians on travel who will become uh, exposed and infected. And it's true that with March break, there will be returned imported cases that from the U.S. I don't think we can prevent those. Um, I think we are unfortunately tied to the U.S. in our fate uh, to some extent uh, because of the amount of travel between Canada and the U.S. You know, we can't be closing our borders to the United States. None of these things are viable options. But I do think it's important for people to be aware of the public health uh, implications, uh, again, around, uh, around their personal uh, travel. A lot of organizations have taken clear approaches, you know, professional travel stops, um, and that, that is one of the factors that have led them to make those decisions. Uh, you know, we can't tell people how to make their own per individual choices. I think it's challenging, but I think people do need to understand that the risks of doing so at the level of our healthcare system and across our country. Um, and, you know, there are people that are going to go, and that's their personal choice. I do think some people are looking for direction right now as we go into March break, and with this information you know, might just need, uh, you know, one other piece of information to, uh, to cancel their trip and to think about uh, the, the potential uh, consequences. But it's a very, very uh, difficult situation. And I, I think that uh, in the grand scheme of things, um, uh, you know, we're going to see a lot of cases, again, by virtue of our proximity and relationship with the United States. And I, I think I saw the Premier of Quebec today indicated that he was asking any government employee who I think was international travel, which I assume would include the United States, to actually kind of self-isolate after they got back for 14 days. Do you think that's reasonable advice? I, mean, I think it comes down to uh, some of the social distancing principles we've been talking about. Um, again, you know, those include, you know, stay home, uh, you know, if you're sick, uh, see if you can not travel, if that's, if you're able to do so, try to not go out for you know meetings and events that you would do if you have other alternatives like virtual platforms which are uh which are uh you know increasingly available and you know if you have been to a location with a high risk you know currently the uh, recommendations for self quarantine are really for these so called level 3 countries so Iran China um and uh Italy um, and so that's the official guidance federally at the moment. Uh, I think there's a number of other countries with a lot of community transmission. Uh, obviously, the United States is one of them. That guidance hasn't come federally. When you think about the large amount of travelers returning from the United States, it would have big implications. So at the moment, it's left to 
you know, individual organizations to, to consider that. Uh, but uh, given what we know about the United States, it is uh, a reasonable thing to be considering. Mike, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you'd uh, like to discuss? I think along the lines of the last um, topic that, that Jerome covered around uh, travel, I think that there's, you know, there's an economic driver here when I speak with uh, with my own staff. And, you know, the first question I'm asking these days is, what are your plans for March break? Just as a bit of a bit of a test. And interestingly, uh, those that are flying with a carrier that are not providing uh, refunds for cancellation are far more intent on continuing on than those that are flying with a carrier that has said there's no penalty for cancellation. And I think that when we look at some of the levers around behavior and societal decisions, I think there, from a policy level, needs to be some engagement with those very reliable um, decisions that are being made and working with air carriers, for example, to provide alternatives other than simply to say, we've upped our cleaning inside the aircraft. Because I think that that's short-sighted in terms of what's on people's minds. And in the long range, you know, may well be evaluated as a as a perverse incentive for people to increase their risk just because of the monetary loss. That certainly makes a lot of sense. Jerome? Uh, I think that's an excellent uh, point. I think some of those behavioral um, drivers are so important and can be addressed in different ways, like Mike said. I was going to make a separate point, um, which is that some of these social distancing measures seem probably fairly extreme to people. Um, They've been hearing for a while that the risk is low. And it's true that at an individual level, even now, the risk of getting infected with COVID-19 remains low uh, in Canada. Um, And yet, uh, when we look at the projections, uh, and and you, as I said, you could look at, uh, you know, Washington or other areas that are a few weeks ahead of us in their community-based transmission, if we decide to react and impose, we'll say, restrictions like uh, some jurisdictions have done after the crisis is already here, by then it's actually too late. So, uh, you know, I, I think that, that we need to pause and think about that uh, when we have projections around this is where this is going. We've seen it happen in other countries and jurisdictions beyond Canada. Uh, can we learn from that? and proactively put measures in place to uh, try to mitigate. Um, And so I think the time to do so is now. We're currently in the window uh, that will only last a few weeks where we can have an impact. So are you optimistic or pessimistic? A little bit of both, quite frankly. I'm an optimist uh, by in terms of my character, and I'm always looking for solutions uh, to problems. I am concerned about uh, the situation as we move forward. We have to react in such a nimble way to be able to respond almost day by day, and yet doing so uh, as a large country and with all our different jurisdictions uh, is, is definitely a challenge. I think the question is, can we move fast enough? Will we move fast enough? Uh, and ultimately, uh, what will the impact be? And I don't think we'll have a good assessment of that uh, for a few weeks from now. Maybe, Mike, same last question to you. Optimist or pessimist about this? I'm very optimistic at what I've seen around um, an unprecedented level of collaboration within healthcare providers, organizations, 
uh, and uh, policymakers coming together to try and get their heads around this. Where I am a little pessimistic is around some of the very difficult decisions that are going to get made. And I think Jerome touched on it very nicely in terms of now is the window. Now is the time to make these significant sweeping changes. We need political will, however, to shut down schools, to be able to identify what best actions are required. And I think that we should be able to lay out a trajectory for that that has some reliability. In many ways, we need to take the decision-making out of the moment and pre-identify those triggers. And what I'm hearing from the public health professionals is we're there. So we need to make those decisions, those bold decisions now. And when March break happens, maybe the kids shouldn't be coming back from March break. Maybe that's the natural pivot point and really a convenience of the timing for us here in Ontario. Jerome, any comments on the schools? When we're thinking about social distancing, we have uh, children who uh, we know during uh, viral respiratory season, as as it is during this epidemic, uh, congregate uh, in close spaces, share germs, and then bring them back to uh, their families. And it's uh, that could include their parents or grandparents who uh, could be high risk of poor outcomes. We obviously would not want to make this decision lightly. Uh, but when you think about the public health implications, uh, I do think that there is a role for closing schools. Uh, as Mike said, it will take the political will to do so. All right. On that note, I'd just like to thank uh, both of you for uh, taking the time. Um, Mike Nolan, Chief Paramedic and Director of Emergency Services for Brantford County in Ontario, and uh, Jerome Lease. Medical Director, Infection Prevention and Control at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. I'm Andreas Lopakis, Editor-in-Chief for the CMAJ, and thanks very much for listening, and thanks, uh, Mike and Jerome, for joining me. Thank you. Thank you.